standing at the crossroads. We come to the 57th chapter of Isaiah and here we're presenting this chapter with two paths, two roads to travel down. Um, One is very much built on what we've seen in the latter verses of chapter 56. He's already started dealing with it back from verse 9 onwards in chapter 56 where he's looked at the faithless leaders, spiritual leaders, those spiritual leaders who call themselves the leaders of God's people but in reality are not doing the work uh, that God has put them there to do. And uh, now as we go into chapter 57 we see the result that that has produced within those professing to be God's people. Um, Eric Clapton famously wrote a song many years ago, standing at the crossroads, trying to read the sign to tell me which way I should go uh, to find the answer. Well, this chapter presents us with such a crossroad, and there's two roads, but we don't need to hunt very hard to find which way we should go to find the answer God has laid it out for us in this chapter. One way totally displeases him, one will bring nothing but failure and discouragement in this lifetime and ultimately death, and the other which will bring blessing and ultimately eternal life. But I want us to start here. Why would someone choose wrongly? You see, God's not here talking to people outside Israel. He's not addressing the nations. He's not saying, look, you who've got no interest in me. He's talking to those who profess to be his people. He's saying, look, the reality is that within the umbrella of those who profess to be my people, there are an awful lot whose hearts are totally wrong. And then there are some whose hearts are right. So why would there be those who profess to be God's people, who come to church, if you like, sing the hymns, say the prayers, talk the talk, who aren't truly God's, whose hearts aren't for him, who don't hold him up as their one and only God, who don't honour him with their lives. Why would they do that? I don't know how many times when you've been reading through the Old Testament and you come across people, God's people doing exactly that, paying lip service to God while they are worshipping false gods and they're getting caught up in sorts of sin and idolatry, and you, you, you sort of the thought just strikes you so powerfully. Why on earth are they doing it? I mean, it's, it is Yahweh who's brought them out of Egypt. It is he who has kept them through the wilderness. It's he who's brought them into the promised land. Often they didn't even have to fight themselves. God just delivered them, their enemies into their hands. You, you go through the book of Judges and it's not once, but it's this repeated cycle over and over and over again. God raises up someone to deliver them. And they're so grateful to God for five minutes and then they fall back into their sin. And so God hands them over into the hands of their enemies again and they just go round this cycle. And by the end of Judges, of course, they're in a worse state than they were at the very start of it. So why on earth do they keep going round this circle? And it's not as though by worshipping these false gods they actually find any blessing in it. They don't. All they find in it is that God then sets himself against them and things go wrong for them. To the point that they then in the end cry out to God and say, God, we realise we've done wrong, deliver us. They're not getting any blessing out of it. 
And very often, it's not even as if it's a pleasurable experience. I, I mean, there's the God of Moloch, isn't it? You know, that requires them to sacrifice their children to him. And, and very probably, there's a reference to that here where it talks about um, their children. You know, I mean, who wants to go and sacrifice their children to any God? You think, why on earth do they want to live like this? Well, the answer has to be as simple as this, surely. It's just part of that sinful, rebellious nature in us. That as soon as God says, worship me only, we want to worship anybody else. As soon as God says, this is right and that's wrong, we want to do that which God has said is wrong. And even as his people, we have this battle, don't we? In other words, it would be exactly the same question as we must ask ourselves today. Why, when God has said to us, that is sinful, don't do it, do we immediately indulge in doing it? Why is it when God has said, this is how I want you to live, don't we immediately embrace it and do it, knowing that that's where the blessing is, that that is what will please God, it is that that will give us a clear conscience, it's that that will give us peace. And instead we find ourselves struggling, being drawn to everything else. Now it's important that we understand this, isn't it? And God spells it out for us here in these first couple of verses. Verses 1 to 2. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity, he enters into peace, they rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. The righteous, godly life of a God-fearing man It's a wonderful thing to behold if we're right before the Lord, isn't it? It's a wonderful testimony. It's a wonderful example. And when that person dies, you would think there would be an immediate impact on those who've seen his life for good. And yet God says here, it doesn't happen. They don't mark it. They're, They're taken away and no one lays it to heart. No one turns around and says, wow, that's how a life should have been led. That's how I want to live my life. Instead they say, oh, so for all his efforts to please God all through his life, he's ended up in the same place as everybody else, six foot under the ground. Hasn't achieved him anything. And God says, oh, but it has. Look what it's achieved him. He's been taken away from calamity. He's entered into peace. He's been taken out of this world into God's presence and his body has been... Well, it says resting in the bed. His body has just been laid there in the ground until Christ's return, at which time it will be restored to him. So don't think that just because a righteous person ends up, humanly speaking, as far as we can see, being treated exactly the same as the worst sinner. You know, we just dig a hole in the ground, put them in and cover it over and the place remembers it no more. Don't think for one moment that because they end up in the same place it doesn't make any difference how you've lived your life. Because there's no we're supposed to learn from the witness of righteous men. We're supposed to see that and say that's what pleases God. That's how I want to live. But tragically no one does see it. That's God's verdict. My friend, do you think like that at times? Do you look at what a life would cost you if you lived it as God in the Bible says he wants you to live it? And you look at the cost of that and you look at how everybody else is living their lives and you say, well, do you know what? I can see that that's what God wants, but boy, that's far more attractive. 
And at the end of the day, what's it going to matter? We're all going to end up six foot under the ground. God says, you couldn't make a worse mistake. Why on earth would you choose to live like the world when you know how I want you to live? I mean, those who don't know, that's, they're in a different place. When you know, when you've heard from God's word how God wants you to live, how he wants you to come in repentance and submission to Christ, and then how he wants you to live a Christ-centered, God-glorifying life, when you know that, why on earth would you choose anything else? When that is where the blessing is, that's where the peace is, and that is what at the end will bring you into glory. So see the first choice, the slippery road of idolatry. We already saw last time that the spiritual leaders hadn't been acting as watchmen. That was their charge back in chapter 56, verse 10. Nor have they been acting as shepherds of God's people as we saw in 56, 11. And the result is that within the church there are now many, many people who are paying lip service to being God's people but aren't truly God's. And isn't that true of Christianity in the West in our generation? Because of the failure of the church leadership, there are many, many who are in churches who've got no idea even how to become Christians, let alone what God requires of them. And because their leaders aren't saying what they should be saying, they're not going to hear it either. They're going through a form of Christianity, they're going through a a, a practice that appears to be right but there's no real substance in it now for the Jews they were so proud of their ancestry I I mean they used to learn these you know the the, the, uh, genealogies and they could say you know I come from Abraham and they could quote you all the lines down that that preceded them they they were just so proud that I'm a a Jew of the Jews. And look how God describes them here. He says, in reality, your hearts, your sons of sorceresses, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. You think you're so right before me because you're descended from Abraham. He says, when I look at your hearts, forget Abraham, your mother was a whore. Your mother was a sorceress. Your woman was an adulterer. That's, that's what you've inherited. That's the reality. He says, metaphorically, verse 4, you're sticking out your tongue at me. You know, you're, ju- you're, just, you're just living in denial of me. You're living in rebellion against me. You're, you're calling yourself God's people and the very evidence of your lives proves that you're not. Look what they're doing, verse 6. They're gathering smooth stones. Well, you say, what's wrong with that? We used to do that. Um, Sue's mum used to paint pictures on them. She got lovely door stops and all sorts of things uh, painted on smooth stones. There's nothing nice about smooth stones, isn't it? No, what they were doing, they were collecting them to make gods of them. They were collecting them as lucky talismans. They were going, wherever they were going, through the valleys or in the riverbeds, they would find a nice smooth stone and they'd say, wow, that's a nice one, I'll I'll add that to my collection. And God says, that's your portion. And the word there, portion, it's got a sort of double meaning, it can mean smooth. And God's sort of playing on words there and he says, yeah, that, that is your smooth, that's your portion, that's all you've got. These stones, 
that you're collecting as you go around the country. Look, he says, you, to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. You're treating them as though they're me. I mean, how can you do that, says God? How can you take a stone and treat that as though it is God? So he asks a question, and this is the all-important question, isn't it, verse 6? Shall I relent from these things? In other words, should I just ignore this? Do you think I shouldn't respond to this? Do you think I shouldn't take some action against this, says God? When people are saying they're my people, and yet they're treating stones as being God, do you think I shouldn't take any notice of that? And I hope we'd all cry out, absolutely not, Lord. Of course you should be angry about that. Of course you should respond to that. Of course you shouldn't tolerate that. But before we shout it out too loud, what about us? I mean, what are the gods that people put in our day and age in place of the true God? What are the things that people look to in our day and age to give them blessings, secure their future, provide for them? Well, many, aren't there? I mean, first of all, there's all the superstitions that people have. It's amazing, isn't it? We live in a scientific age. I don't know how often today I still hear people say, oh, touch wood, and actually then look around for a bit of wood to touch. Or fingers crossed. Or they won't walk under a ladder. Or or they chuck the salt over their shoulder, or whatever it is they do, as though somehow that's going to do them some good. Then there are those who trust in lotteries. Oh, the God of the lottery. You know, how, how, how am I going to be blessed in my lifetime. I know I will, I will pay some money into a lottery and if, and if it pleases the gods of the lottery, I'll become rich and I'll have an abundance for the rest of my life and I'll be able to do this and I'll be able to do that. And it becomes their God. Or there's the satanic things, the things that are clearly satanic, like horoscopes. Oh, well, you know, I, I must check my horoscope. Because, you know, what I do today is going to depend what I read in my horoscope. I'd never admit that, but, but I like to check it anyway. And, and these things, while they wouldn't be... Nobody here, I don't think, this morning is going to put my hand up and say, yeah, I do those things. But they start to slip in if we're not careful. And once we start to go down that path, it's just a slippery road that just goes down and down and down and down. And then there's the idolatrous worship of putting our worship alongside worship to false gods under the umbrella of unity. You know, we shouldn't be standing up making this big thing about Christ being the only way to be saved. What about all the other religions of the world? We should focus on what we have in common, not on what we are different over. What do we have in common with people that worship a God who is no God? Nothing. And yet how many quotes Christians in the world today will happily stand with those who worship false gods and say, look, we stand together worshipping God. Well, they don't stand together worshipping my God. And then how many are there within, quotes, Christianity in the world today who've added so much into the gospel that it's no longer the gospel? 
Paul writes into the church of Galatia would say, let them be anathema, even if it's an angel saying it. But no, they've, they've added in worship of saints. They've added in practices. They've added in various things that, you know, you've got to do that and that as well as have faith in what Christ has done. No, says God, you can't do that. It is the simple gospel of faith in Christ and Christ alone. It's nothing. He says, no, once you go here, you start going down this slippery, slippery slope and then I come to the point of saying, do you really think I shouldn't take action against you? Should I relent from this? Look how far it's taken them from the pure worship of God. Verse 5. They're, they're doing it under the cliffs of the rocks. They're doing it out in the hidden places. But then you go to verse 7 and they're doing it on a high and lofty mountain. It's just taking over their lives. They're, do, they're doing it anywhere and everywhere. Verse 8, they're erecting memorials in their homes to these false gods. Verse 8, they're making covenants with these false gods. Remember when I was in Malawi teaching Christology there in the Bible college and I was trying to read as much as I could on practices, wrong practices that were, in, that were widespread within the African Christian church and uh, I remember reading that one of them was this that when someone becomes a Christian and they become a Christian I'm not questioning the fact they become a Christian uh, but in their immaturity they are putting their Bible where they previously put their whatever their animistic beliefs so typically they put it under their pillows so that when they go to bed they put their Bible under their pillow so they're sleeping now on the Bible not what they were sleeping on before as though somehow their Bible is going to protect them by being under their pillow now, God would say, what are you doing? It's not your Bible that protects you. It's Christ's work on the cross that protects you. Do you somehow think you're safer because you've got your Bible under your pillow than if you left it on the shelf? Of course you're not. But it's so easy for us to go down this path, isn't it? And he says, look, madly, verse 10 despite this futile, continual hunt to find a God who would actually bless you, you never actually got to the common sense position of saying, it's hopeless. Why on earth did you never wake up and realise this was a futile exercise, says God? No, instead you found new life for your strength so that you would not faint. You went on and on and on and on and persevered, although there was never any hope in it. Such is the power of sin in us, isn't it? Such is the power of our rebellious nature. That even when we know what we're doing is wrong, we still persevere in it. Although we know it's going to bar God's blessing from us. Although we know we're not going to be living the peaceful, joyous life that we otherwise would be, we still do it. Even though we know it's hopeless. My friend, are you looking over that precipice and seeing what the world's doing and saying, that's attractive. Is Satan coming and tempting you with some sin? And maybe he's been doing it for a long time. And if you're anything like me, it's a life's battle, isn't it? To defeat sin. It's a constant conflict within you. 
But you get to that point where you're thinking, maybe I'm wasting my time even fighting against this. God will say, do you know where that road takes you? You submit to me, you obey me, you fight it, and you trust me, and I'll give you the victory. But tragically, there are millions today, and there are millions within the umbrella of the church, who are not saved. And they think they are. Because they are not trusting solely in the accomplished, completed, perfect work of Christ for their salvation. And they're not honouring him in their lives. So here's the alternative road. We're at a crossroads. You can go that way or you can go this way. Here's the alternative, the God-glorifying road of true worship. Don't you just love it when God's been painting a really, really black picture? And you're just at the point of thinking, this is so black. And then you get that one tiny little word, but. And suddenly you're presented with this totally different picture. And it's exactly what happens here. But he who takes refuge in me. Don't have to stay that road. You can come back to this crossroads. You can say, right, as from today, I'm going to get it right. We had the children singing to us this morning, haven't we? I remember when I was in Sunday school, and I won't tell you how many years ago. Yes, I will. It was about 55 years ago. Um, And uh, I remember we used to sing a chorus, and I don't know how many people still sing it today. I met Jesus at the crossroads. Where the two ways meet, Satan too was standing there. And he said, come this way. Lots and lots of treasures I can give to you today. But I said, no, there's Jesus here. Just see what he offers me. Down here, my sin's forgiven. Up there, a home in heaven. Praise God, that's the way for me. And that's reality of life, isn't it? You know, there's there's God saying, come this way, and there's Satan saying, come this way, and Satan saying, look what I can give to you. And God's saying, yeah, but look what I can give to you. Which do you want? And here he presents his way. Now see, this is massively different from verse 14 onwards, isn't it? So different to what's gone before it. See these two things first of all. Firstly, verse 14, God takes away every obstacle between you and him. This is God crying out. Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Whatever you perceive as being those obstacles in the way between you and God, God says... They're not obstacles to me. You walk my way and I'll just take them out of your way. I will not let anything remain between me and you. I will deal with it. Or I will give you the strength to deal with it. Isn't that wonderful? You know, God doesn't say, well, you know, if you come my way, well, you might get near to me, you might not. Depends. You know, one day I might like to, another day I might not. God says, no, you walk my way. And there will not be anything comes between us. And then look, secondly, verse 15, he enlarges on that. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is God. But look what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. 
God says, just because I'm so holy and so high and separate and different, don't think that I won't come and live with you if you walk my way. If you will come in repentance and faith to Christ, if you will take up your cross and follow me, says God, then I will make my home with you and I will dwell with you. And he says, I do it for two reasons, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He says, I do it to do a spiritual work in you. I do it to transform you. I do it to grow you. I do it so that you can be like my own son, Jesus Christ. A friend, if you're in Christ, this is for you. This is a promise that God's making you. Although he is so holy that, that if, if, if Jesus was to walk in here in physical form this morning, I don't know about you, but I'd be flat on my face on the ground before him. He is the Holy One. But he says, but if you're in Christ, I will draw near to you. And if you're in Christ, then I'll make my home with you. And my friend, this is for you if you're not a Christian because this is what you're missing out on. You can be part of the practice of the Christian church. You can sing the hymns. You can read your Bible. You can do all these things, but God's not with you. And and God's home is not with you. You're alienated from him and will remain like that until you come back to that crossroads and say, from here on, I'm going to go God's way. But God still disciplines his people. Don't think that because you become a Christian, that means that God's never got an issue with you. Don't think that means God's never got anything that he's displeased with you. Don't think that means God's never got anything that he wants to put right in you. Absolutely. When you become a Christian, at that point, God says, now I'm going to start working on you. I mean, becoming a Christian is just the start of this journey, isn't it? Listen to Hebrews 12. Let me just read a few verses from verse 5 onwards. And have you forgotten? This is the writer's writing to Christians. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, God's people here, both those who are not truly gods and those who are truly gods, are going to alike go into exile. Alike, they're going to stand there saying, woe is us, what a terrible place we're at. But God says, but for those who are truly mine, I've got a purpose in it. And what a purpose it is. First of all, verse 16. It is temporary. 
if you're a child of the living God and God is disciplining you right at the moment first of all it's because you need it make no mistake God's not interested in disciplining you when you don't need it it's because you need it but it's just temporary look what he says verse 16 I will not contend forever nor will I always be angry he says no I would do what's necessary for as long as it's necessary to bring about the change that I want to see in you and what is that change? Look at verse 18. First of all, I will heal him. I will bring about spiritual healing in him. I will lead him, verse 18. God's, God's saying, look, my purpose is to shape you and mould you into the image of Christ so that you become useful to me, so that you become God-glorifying in this world, so, so, so that you live the life that I designed you to live if you ever stop to think about it but if God's designed us a particular way to live a particular way we're not going to be as happy as we could be until we're living that way are we you know I mean man's designed to walk on two feet two legs if you spend your whole of your adult life crawling around your hands and knees you're not going to enjoy it as much as if you got up and walked on your legs because that's the way God's designed you and if God's designed us to be spiritual beings in the image of Christ, then it's only when we are spiritual beings in the image of Christ that we're living as God made us to live and we enjoy living as God means us to enjoy it. He says, I'll heal him, I'll lead him, I'll restore comfort to him. And verse 19, he'll be at peace. Peace, peace to the far and to the near. What a wonderful package. So God says, so why would you choose the other way? Why on earth would anyone say, now that I know what God has done for me in Christ Jesus, I'm going to choose to do it the way the world does it and ignore that. God says, why? There's no sense in it except that rebellious nature of ours that wants to do it my way. But God says, if you'll do it my way, Look what a difference it will make. I'll heal you, I'll lead you, I'll comfort you, and I'll give you my peace. And when this brief lifetime is over, and they lay your body to rest in the ground, your soul will be in glory with Christ. And at the judgment day, you will be judged righteous in my sight, Christ's blood will cover your sin and you'll be welcomed into the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. You'll have a glorified body and there for all of eternity you will enjoy what it means to be in Christ perfectly. We're going to sing together how deep